All right, everybody, how's it going? Welcome to Tapeheads, 80s Music and Beyond. I am Blaine. And I'm Todd in the Pacific Northwest. This is the podcast that talks about music. Uh, we talk about a lot of different songs, and today we're going to be talking about... Actually, this actually was was recorded in uh, 1990. Oh, I thought it was 89. I saw differing things about it. No, it was... Um, let me Let me look here. Okay. Yeah, they started the band in 89. I thought they put the record out right away. It was recorded from March to May, 1990. Okay, well then here's the thing about that. <laughs> to me, I guess the 90s don't really start until 91, because that's when grunge and culture and music and everything changed. So until 91, everything else was still 80s-based stuff. So I think we can get by on a technicality. <laughs> Plus, we are called 80s music and beyond. Right. So we could be talking about music that isn't even released yet. Oh man, greetings from the future. So something happened uh, in between last show and this show. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about on this show. For one thing, Pee Wee Herman died. Paul Rubens. And for another thing, Sinead O'Connor died. Sure. I don't give a crap about Sinead O'Connor. Oh man. I never have. I always didn't like her. I thought her music was crappy and... I don't know why I cared that she ripped up the Pope's You cared about that? Picture. I did not care about that because I'm, I'm not Catholic, and I just didn't care. I just, but I thought it was rude, <laughs> even though I know there was a lot, of, a lot of stuff going on, and I just didn't like her in the first place, and that's why I just thought it was kind of rude. Well, I liked her, and I, I thought she was interesting, and uh, she had a few hits back in the day, and she kind of owned that Prince song, made it her own. Yeah. How many albums of hers did you own? Zero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could tell you really liked her. Well, there's plenty of people that I don't have their albums, but I like them. I know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, when she ripped up the thing about the Pope, that was to um, raise awareness about sexual abuse of children in the Catholic Church in 1992. No one was talking about that stuff then. Fight the real enemy. And I know, and I agree with that, but I just didn't like her. <laughs> now, Pee Wee Herman, on the other hand... That's because she wasn't a hot chick, probably. She was a, right. If these chicks were hot, you'd be all over her. Right. She I mean, had her head shaved. She did that on purpose, too. But Pee Wee Herman, I went and saw his movie, Pee Wee's uh, no, Big Adventure, and I remember going to see that movie. In the theater? Not all movies do I remember going, oh yeah, I saw it at the theater, and I loved it. <laughs> I, I just couldn't believe how hilarious it was. Why? What's the significance? I don't know! His name is not Pee Wee Herman, it's Paul Rubens, and he's played other parts and stuff, but... Uh, he did try to make Pee-wee a performance art kind of character. He wanted people to believe that Pee-wee was a real person, a real professional actor in his own right. Had nothing to do with Paul Rubens. And that's how he, I, I felt. Yeah, him. yeah. I didn't really ever think of him as the other guy. So Yeah, he didn't go out in public as Paul Rubens. He went out as Pee-wee. If he was you know, credited in a film, it was always as Pee-wee. So yeah, that was his persona for years and years. Yeah. Anyway, Pee-wee Herman, dead of... Uh... Stomach cancer? Some sort of cancer. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, Sinead died by her own doing. 
I have they said that for sure. I guess I didn't read the news in the last couple. That's all I've ever heard. Yeah, I know that sh- her son had uh, killed himself, and she never really got over that. Yeah, so I never got over it, and it was like four years ago, five years ago. Yeah, that's terrible. She has had a rough life. She was kind of canceled before cancel culture was even a thing. So anyway. So on a lighter note. I was just going to say, here's a, here's, a, here's a funnier one. We can bring it back around to this. Paul Rubens in, was it 91? Uh, he'd been a big star for years and years. And in 91, he got busted watching a porno in a porno movie theater. Yes. And he was exposing his member and manipulating it in public. And... Uh, he got busted by four undercover cops. <laughs> how many? Okay, here's my question: Is like, how many undercover cops does it take to bust one guy in a porno theater? And is there really a reason for that? Yeah, like who cares? But plus, I mean, he's a recognizable guy, and like, could he just do it at home? <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> why do you have to go to a theater? Oh man, crazy. So, what song are we talking about today? <laughs> On a lighter note. We got to rein this in. We are talking about the Rembrandts. Uh, The song is Just the Way It Is, Baby. Funny thing about the Rembrandts is when you say to anyone, you ever heard of the Rembrandts? Oh, no. They're the ones that do that song. It's just the way it is, baby. No, I haven't heard of them. Well, you've probably heard this song. I'll be there for you when the rain starts to fall. Oh, yeah, I love that song. I love those guys. <laughs> I had a funny thing happen last night. I was telling somebody that uh, oh, we're doing our show tomorrow. We're going to record it, and we're doing one on the Rembrandts. And he goes, yeah, I don't know the Rembrandts. I was like, yes, you do. And he's like, no, I don't, I don't think so. And I was like... Didn't even sing a word, and he instantly launched into the entire song. <laughs> I was like, hey, you see, you do know him. <laughs> so when I was doing, when you decided to do this, mm-hmm. uh, I had I had this CD. Actually, you know what? My cousin had this CD. It wasn't me. But I had borrowed it and played it a lot, <laughs> and, I, and I liked it. And I liked the Beatlesque kind of stuff that was going on with this. But I had a hard time. When I was doing some research for this, everything's all about, oh, it's about the Friends song, you know, and all that. They didn't have anything about this because I specifically remembered reading about the recording of this first album. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. Oh, excellent. But I, I didn't find anything on the internet about that. I found little tiny snippets, and I remembered some things that I'm going to talk about that was not able to find on the internet, but I remember from when I was, um, you know, 19, 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Well, I had this CD. I recently got rid of the first one. <laughs> I didn't know we were going to be podcasting about it, or I might have kept it, but it just, I didn't find myself listening to it as much as I used to. And I got redecorated my apartment, and I had to be a little more ruthless about getting rid of things like books and CDs and stuff that I don't really listen to or read, or I've already read, and I'm kind of done with. So, And that album was in that sort of culling process. Um, I do have their second one, and I do have LP, which is the album that has the Friends theme. But yeah, I found myself listening to all three of them today, and that was very fun. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yeah, and the second one, 
I'll talk about that later, but uh, okay, that one might be my favorite. That was Dan Wilde's favorite album that he recorded. Oh wow! Well, I'm in good company then. Anyway, so let's let's go back and and let, tell us a little bit about how these guys got together. Okay. Yeah, they actually played in a band long before this. Great Buildings. I got the impression that these guys were, they were a band, but these two guys were the singers and they both were the songwriters, clearly, because it sounds like this same exact kind of songwriting formula. But it also sounded like they maybe weren't in control of the band, like it was a democracy instead of a dictatorship, <laughs> like I suspect the Rembrandts were, because these guys were the leaders in Rembrandts, and I don't think they were the leaders in Great Buildings. But not a bad album, but it's just it's from 1981. They only put out the one album, and then they broke up. But they knew they knew they wanted to work together, so obviously they had gotten along during this. Yes. They did their own solo things separately for years and years, and nothing really took off. And then they were like, yeah, we should, we should really do it for real this time. And they started the Rembrandts. The guys' names are Danny Wilde and Phil Solemn? Solemn. Solemn. I guess this is where I can talk about the recording of this album. Great. Because to me, this blew my mind back in 1991. Or 1990. <laughs> whenever, it, whenever it was released. They recorded this album in a garage. Nowadays, there's tons of people that are recording albums in their bedrooms, in their house, uh, their basements, because they have... <laughs> All the stuff we have. <laughs> you can buy or get for free digital audio workstations for your computer. You can buy a $100 interface that goes over the USB and you can plug microphones into it. Find the plugins you love and you can record your album. You know, it just all depends on what kind of talent you have, what your sound's going to be like. And Bob's your uncle. Yes. Back in this time, this was, in 1990, this was kind of the peak of the record plant, you know, Hit Factory, right. Sound City, those kind of recording studios where they would have, Def Leppard had a $4 million, it cost them $4 million to record their album. They had to sell, I don't remember how many, how many albums just to break even. So they would they had these huge these they would get recording contracts and they would say okay that demo sounds good we're going to send you off to Sound City and you're going to work with so and so and we're going to of course take this out of out of the money you're going to make off the albums yes but you're going to go in there and you're going to spend x amount of weeks and you're going to record you have a budget of $150,000 or $300,000 if you're Nikki 6 we're going to bring somebody in to play bass for you <laughs> We're going to bring uh, Tim Pierce in to play some solos for you, and <laughs> you know because they could go in, they could do it quicker than the songwriters in in many cases. But this album, these guys recorded it in their garage with an eight track reel to reel and some AKG C four one four microphones. Oh man, you you found that a lot. That's great. I remember that C four one four from when I was younger, <laughs> but I didn't find that on the internet. But I remember. And I actually found a video of 
Dan Wild playing around with uh, Fender Telecaster. He was like playing the solo to the song, and he was like flipping the guitar upside down and playing it, and taking two strings and bending them. It was he was just being a goofball. But on the on the bench in the garage, you can see an eight track mixer on on there. Wow. Obviously, that's what they use to go into the eight track tape machine. You see a Macintosh computer, the original one, mm-hmm. on there. I mean, obviously, that wasn't used for recording music because this was 1990. I mean, actually, I don't know. Very well, could have been. And a Coors can on the on the thing. Anyway, <laughs> that's how they recorded this album. They were recording demos. Do you know if um, they recorded it themselves, or did they have an engineer engineer for them? Dan Wild was the engineer. Man, he did an awesome job on this. Yeah, and he mixed it. Wow. Anyway, they took it to the record company. Here's our demos. Oh, man, that sounds awesome. <laughs> Let's do it. We want it just like that. So, you know, here, give us the masters or whatever. And, it, you know, he mixed it in his, in what is called Dan's Garage, which was a house in Thousand Oaks, I think. And that's the album you hear. He said that they did add some strings and stuff to a few songs. Right, right. Okay. I was wondering about that. Other than that, it's all the demo. And if you listen to it, it sounds great. And part of it is because, heck, it was only eight tracks. And, you know, did they, they record the drums through another mixer and kind of mix it and then send it to a two-track? I don't know. You know, listen to it with your headphones on. It's not like it's some amazing um, stereo mixes and stuff in that. It's just real bare bones. But it sounds perfect. Yeah, it's pretty stripped-down rock and roll. It's not Sgt. Pepper or anything, but they're not trying to be. Well, but Sgt. Pepper was recorded on four tracks. But then again, they had some of the the most famous musicians in the world at the time, and they had uh, Jeff Emmerich, who was a world-class engineer, and then they had, uh, uh, what's his name, the the producer, I can't think of his name. George Martin. George Martin. Four tracks. But they were bouncing stuff. Still awesome. What I was thinking of was not recording, but I was thinking of instrumentation. It's, there's not a lot of like orchestras and all that kind of stuff on the right. brands. So it's pretty, pretty straightforward rock. They recorded this themselves, which totally impressed with this. Absolutely. I was impressed back in 1991. Clearly. I'm still impressed today that they did that. Um, and their second album, they did it the same way as well. Oh, okay. So at least they recorded it at his house. I don't know if it was mixed you know, and I don't know if he had 16 tracks, 24 tracks. I don't know. But they still recorded it at his house. And that was what, one of the things he said it was his most favorite album to record. They have the same sound quality. I think their songwriting improved just a little bit in that time. They were taking a little more chances on the second one. And they also were getting better at arrangements. And they had one in the can already. So it's like they already knew what they wanted to do. And they wanted to, they wanted to step up their game a little bit. Yeah, so I, I think it's, they they work together great as a as a duo. I do too. Their voices, I mean, you can tell they've put in some serious time singing together. They harmonize perfectly with each other. Their voices sound exactly the same. They 
pronounce their words the same. And oh, there's just they're, just, they're top-notch singers. So this this first song, I think there was two songs off this album that they released, but this first song got a lot of radio play that I remember. And this is the very first song on their very first album. So it's just kind of like, all right, blow the doors off. <laughs> it's like, okay. And, and the album is great. It's really Beatlesque. Um, that's something we kind of fail to talk about a lot on this show. Um, you know, Beatles is, is really the... Most artists, when they talk about who do you guys listen to and all that, almost everybody is the Beatles. This is also the time when music is just barely starting to change. It's the end of the 80s, end of the hair metal thing, and there's a beginning of the 60s revival, and they were going back to that original wellspring. That's where bands like Crowded House. Michael Penn. Marshall Crenshaw. Jellyfish. Jellyfish, for sure. They're all going back to the 60s and maybe 70s, but mostly 60s, and certainly the Beatles were the biggest influence. I can even hear a little Everly Brothers with these guys. And they also have like an Americana thing that the Beatles don't have. So yeah, they, they, they found a nice little niche. <laughs> Both Solemn and Wild had their lives changed by the Beatles. A young Wild even attended the Beatles' 1966 Dodger Stadium show. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. And hello. I've never seen the Beatles. I've seen Paul McCartney a couple yes. times. Do you know why you've never seen the Beatles? Because they broke up when I was a little baby boy. They broke up before you were born. Did they? Yes, they did. When did they break up? I was born in 71. They broke, broke up in 70. Uh, okay. My old girlfriend's dad, they lived in San Francisco, he saw the Beatles' last concert <laughs> in Candlestick Park. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I was going to say that as well. Their last concert was in 66, unless you saw them in Seville Row up on the rooftop. But <laughs> yeah, so that would have been, he saw them in Candlestick Park. That's awesome. Yeah. So Wild Song, probably one concert before that, the Dodger Stadium show. They released this album, then that second album that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And at that point, how did the... You know what? Actually, that whole friend song was a afterthought to their album. I think that they had actually already recorded most of that last album and he said i think it was a hidden track 
released on the album. So like, it's possible that maybe artwork was all done and they just threw it on there. I, I don't know. I didn't see that. I saw it as, uh, they are, they had their album in the works and then when they were approached by, because they didn't write the song, I'll Be There For You. Another guy, like a TV producer guy, wrote it. The guy who wrote the music was named Michael Skiff? Skliff? Skliff. And the woman who wrote the lyrics was Allie Willis. So they already had this existing song, and then Michael Skliff was a fan of the Rembrandts. He's like, you know what? We should have them do it. So they approached the Rembrandts, and they were like, hey, would you guys like to do this for us? And they thought, yeah, this is a great song. We'd be happy to do it. Just They, they were like, yeah, do your thing. Make it sound like you guys. We want that. Hmm. Now, to me, I, I don't, when did the this Friends song come out? 94. 94. So I was I was working at a TV station, and I really watched the stuff that was on CBS at the time, and Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. So I did not watch Friends. I just I I watched a few episodes of Friends. It just never clicked with me. Same here. I didn't work at a TV station, but I was. Let's see, ninety three. I was working at the video store actually. So during the and I worked nights for a lot of the time. So I was always at work. You know when these kind of shows were on. Also, I didn't really like them. I didn't love Seinfeld. I saw it a few times, and I didn't love this show um, either. So when I bought the CD that this song is on. I didn't even really know about Friends. And so I just bought, hey, a new Rembrandt's record. Awesome. And uh, then I, I got home and listened to it. I realized that that was the Friends song. And I was like, oh, man, the record store guy probably thought I uh, just bought it because I like Friends. <laughs> I actually don't. <laughs> and they included the song on the album at the very end. So it's the last song on LP album. Is it uh, written down on there as a number? Yeah, it's not a hidden track. Okay. Yep, it's loud and proud. Did you see, when you were researching this, did you see that that song actually broke up the band? The Friends song? Yeah. Did you see that? No, I didn't. It created... Danny was totally into it. He was He loved the song and he was proud of it. But he, uh, Phil was worried that people were going to see them as sellouts <laughs> because they always wrote their own songs. That was the only one they didn't write, by the way. They always written their own songs, and they were kind of critical darlings, kind of like Fountains of Wayne, the equivalent of somebody like that. And they, so they were worried that people were going to think, oh, man, these guys are just doing this thing to make money for TV. Well, that's funny because Fountains of Wayne, the only song that most people know is Stacy's mom and they don't like that song that much it was just a song that they did but it made them famous and of course rich and if you see them live they kind of play it a completely different way and it's it's just kind of funny that's did they not write that was that was that written by somebody else no they wrote it oh okay but right. it just you know it was kind of a throwaway song they were doing it as a cars yeah. Um, tribute song <laughs> yeah, totally. and it and became super famous and huh. that's not really what they wanted they, oh gosh well you guys need to listen to all of these other songs but that's not what were hits <laughs> the buying public i always think of them as the band that wrote the song for that thing you do that's the big hit for me oh, yeah? for them yeah like i don't know them that well well i like them but i don't know them that well i don't have any of their stuff 
I, that's a band I need to explore more because every everything I've heard has been really great. Fountains of Wayne are one of my favorites. Yeah, it's too bad we lost um, Adam Schlesinger. Adam Schlesinger to COVID a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yep. I was thinking about the the idea of selling out and about fame and stuff and how weird that, that can make people. They were so worried about it, and it was such made such a difference that it broke up the band for such a dumb reason. I was just thinking about like how every band wants to be successful, you know, whether they say it or not, or whether they admit it or not. They want to be successful. Maybe not famous, but they want to be successful. And like when you're at a level like that, I mean, look at the number of plays on Spotify for that song. <laughs> well, put it this way. Most of their songs are like anywhere from like 20,000 plays to 100,000 plays. The better songs are 100,000. And the Friends theme, I'll Be There For You, 210 million or something. Yeah, 211 million. And then just the way it is, baby, the one that we're talking about today, 27 million. Oh, see, that's still pretty good. But yeah, but that's still, that's the other song is 175 million more. Yeah. (laughs) It's just kind of funny. Most of their others are kind of floundering around like 30, 40, 50. Oh, oh, and and then number four at six million, I'll be there for you from friends. How is that different from and, that? And 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 and, for, and three point seven million. I'll be there for you. TV version with dialogue. Whoa! But anyway, I was just <laughs> thinking about the fame thing and like fame and success. You know how to say this? Everybody wants it, but when it shows up, if you are lucky or unlucky, if you achieve some sort of fame and success, it may not appear in the way that you want it or in the way that you thought you would get it, or the, the way you were pursuing it. And I think that seems like what's happening with these guys. But I guess I don't... I can't imagine anybody thinking they would have sold out, because, I mean... Well, you have to think about it. They go, People would go to their shows, and that's the song everybody wants to hear, but we did all these other songs that, that we wrote, mm-hmm. and that's not what you guys want to hear. You want to hear this one that somebody else wrote. Just like Sinead O'Connor... She hated that that song that she did, the Prince song, got famous. She hated that. She did not like that. That's so weird because it's so great. <laughs> it's such a Same thing with that thing you do. They got famous from that song, and the guitar player, lead singer, wanted to do his own stuff. And But that's just a movie. A great movie. Yeah, yeah, it is. But see, that's the same thing. They only want fame to be a certain way. Right. On their terms. Yes, exactly. They want it to kind of like... The way everybody seems to want, the way Rick Astley got famous. And then he just backed out and didn't do anything, but he was still receiving all the money and still receiving, you know, people knew who he was. But, I mean, he says even now, he's like, I don't know if it's just my sort of nondescript face or whatever. I can go and sell out a huge 20,000-seat arena, and then I can go out and get a drink in the pub across the street right afterwards, and nobody knows who I am. And, like, and maybe one person will come up like, hey, are you Mr. Rick Astley? But it's not, I mean, he doesn't attract attention. I think everybody wants that kind of fame, you know? And if you want to hear about Rick Astley, you can listen to one of our podcasts where we talk about him, and maybe you can get that song, or that that episode to get over the hump over the heavy metal episode. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really fun episode. You had a good time with that. So what song did you find for Cover Your Ears? Big 
cover your ears. The original idea was to focus on that's just the way it is, baby. But man, there were just no fun versions of this. There was nothing bad, but there were just like, you know, guy sitting there strumming his guitar. Who cares? There was like two versions of that. It wasn't fun. There was an acoustic duo band. Who cares? Same kind of thing. Like, just wasn't even fun. So I decided to see what kind of versions they had of I'll Be There For You. Found a killer one. <laughs> do you know the band Postmodern Jukebox? No, but can I pull it up here? Hold on. Yeah, do it. Yeah. yeah. So they are they are YouTube royalty as far as kind of redesigning the music business on YouTube. And they do all these. I, the piano player is the band leader. And he does these crazy arrangements of rock songs and very famous songs. And sometimes he'll do medleys and they'll have all kinds of special guests come in. And like they do a very famous version of Creep by Radiohead. They do, I mean, all these awesome songs. And I actually saw them live here probably 10 years ago. And it was amazing. All right, let me play this. Yeah, the 20s and 30s versions are like jazz, brass. It's like you're always stuck in second So they go through and they have all these various singers, and then they move off the side, they pull the mics off, and then somebody else new will come in and they'll sing for a little bit, and they're doing the 40s version of the 50s. And then at the very end, the two guys from Rembrandt's come out and they finish the song off. It's awesome. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it is. They're great and they're worth investigating on their own. I don't need to go into too much detail about them because, I mean, they're very well known on YouTube already and they have been for a long time. I've never heard of them, ah. but I'm going to check out some of their other stuff. Oh, you should. They're so good. So tonight we're talking about a movie for our movie that I'd never even heard of. <laughs> and uh, Todd wanted me to watch it, and I watched it. Mm-hmm. And what is that movie? That movie is called Communion. Oh, yes. So most of you people are saying communion. I've never heard of that. Well, I'm with you, gentlemen and ladies, because, and 5% from Canada. I have not heard of that movie. And and so he made me watch it. He didn't make me, but I watched it. And uh, I merely suggested. It's okay. Yeah. 
So tell us about Communion. Okay. It is from 1989. It's based on a book, sort of an autobiography, by a guy named Whitley Strieber. And it's about alien abduction that he claims to have experienced for a few years, starting in the mid-80s. And uh, maybe before that, there's some... He talks about that, maybe his childhood. Like he's always had kind of lived with this thing. Yeah, so it's about that. Christopher Walken is the star. Is that someone there? Eric Clapton did the theme song. He did. It's a pretty cool theme song, but I, I felt it was completely out of... Really didn't have anything to do with it. Maybe it should have been the end theme song or something. Mm-hmm. But I just felt it not f- didn't fit. Yeah, this movie is full of some odd choices from like directing and I would say even writing. I don't not necessarily writing, more from like directing and just it's not an easy watch. I like it, I will say that, but it's not an easy watch. But yeah, so it's about this author that gets abducted by aliens, and he doesn't really know it at first, and he goes to a um, psychiatrist, and she hypnotizes him, and they find out that he was abducted by aliens. I'm going to take you farther forward in that night. You're going to remain calm. What happens? I am the dreamer. You are the dream. It's terrible. What they did to me. I can't wake up. Here I am, I'm naked. I'm naked. I'm talking to you like you were real. Go to hell. Terrible. He thinks they're crazy, then he goes back to this house that he was abducted at and it happens again and he meets these it's his cabin his cabin yeah he meets these aliens and there's like two different kinds of aliens Mm -hmm. they both look just oh my gosh goofy looking well if you (laughs) if you remember the end of the movie the mask came off the mask came off and so they are not that's not their real faces right they're they're not going to show us what they really look like so but this was a true story or what was said as a mm-hmm. true story yes because he's a writer in this movie and in real life and anyway at the very end he finally embraces that he was abducted by aliens and then he writes the story about it and he it, it breaks his his writer's block that he has at the beginning of the movie or throughout the movie yeah i don't know if you know this did you know that when i was a kid i used to want to be a ufologist <laughs> No. I was like eight years old, nine, ten. Yeah, I was super into that stuff. Well, I mean, I think a lot of us were. That was probably about the time of Battlestar Galactica being out. And UFOs was kind of a big big thing going on in that time. Right. Yeah, the, my favorite show at the time, besides Battlestar Galactica and all that, was called Project UFO. <laughs> don't look it up on YouTube, or if you do, don't operate any heavy machinery after watching it. It's so bad. It's like... What's the name of the guy who did Plan 9 from Outer Space? Ed Wood. It's Ed, Ed Wood. Wood bad. It's like, you know, they'll say it's 3 o'clock in the morning and it's daylight in the film. It's just like, oh, it's so bad. Well, this was a film or was this it's on a TV? a TV show. Series. Okay. Yeah. 
Saturday after Fantasy Island. <laughs> Project UFO. Be there. Ezekiel saw the wheel. This is the wheel he said he saw. These are unidentified flying objects that people say they are seeing now. Are they proof that we are being visited by civilizations from other stars? Or just what are they? The United States Air Force began an investigation of this high strangeness in a search for the truth. What you are about to see is part of that 20-year search. Of course, later on, there's X-Files and stuff like that. But when I worked at the video store, I was up all night half the time, you know, a lot of times. And I would listen to Art Bell, the radio show Coast to Coast. And he had Whitley Strieber on that show all the time. It was like a oh. very common guest on there. And this was like late 80s, early 90s. He would come on a lot. I used to listen to Art Bell when he had to have like Bob Lazar on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the guy that claimed he worked at Area 51. Mm-hmm, yeah. I remember him too, and he'd have like all those all those secret sort of government technology kind of stuff. I always thought that was interesting. And then at some point after Art died and like some other people took over the show, it became more of like a conspiracy show, and I lost interest in it. That was the funny thing about the Art Bell show is he would interview people and not act like these people are crazy. He would he would interview them like this was really oh so you you're a time traveler. Oh, tell me a little bit about that kind of thing. And it was very, very entertaining. Yeah, exactly. He wasn't judgmental about it. He would just kind of offer people a place to tell their stories. And we could decide for ourselves if we thought they were crazy or if they were not. So here, ladies and gentlemen, is Lee Strieber. Hey, buddy. Here, Art. Such an extraordinary pleasure to be talking to you again. It's good to have you. And uh, it's hard always to know where to start. Well, there's a lot of places to start. Um... And maybe the thing to do is to start with a quick retelling. So it began when and how? Well, in the middle of the night of December the 26th, 1985. To me, I'm not saying, oh, that's a great movie, go watch it, but it's it's not terrible. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd give it like a 6.5 or 7 out of 10. Uh, I'd give it a 3. <laughs> oh, that's not that bad. See, one thing I like about it is... Christopher Walken's acting, he's a very specific kind of actor, and usually he like he's the crazy guy, or he's the funny guy, or he's the just creepy guy. And he plays sort of all those roles within this one role, and I just think he does a great job of acting. But it's a strange movie, too, the direction. It seems like it could, it's like an hour 45, and it could easily be an hour 30. You know, because like the director just kind of let them kind of ramble. All the actors sort of ramble in these big family scenes. Right. I think the reason this movie is not so popular is because people who saw it or wanted to see it at the time were expecting it to be like horror or sci-fi or something like that, and it's not. It's more like about... One man's... Yes. It's about the effects of this experience on the guy's personality and his his psychological state and his family. Right. It's very slow, and it's not, not your usual alien abduction kind of story. It's not like fire in the sky or... Something like that, where it's very suspenseful. It's not at all. It's not supposed to be. Bob, we are not victims. We are participants. Well, I don't know about you folks, but I am very definitely a victim. I didn't want what they did to me. I didn't want a rectal probe, Lori. It's not funny. That's why I say victim. Nobody wants it. Nobody asked for it. 
I wish that he would have returned to the group of UFO people. <laughs> yeah. And because he kind of they kind of talked about stuff and then he left and that was when he went and visited the house. But uh, you know, he never gave those guys the satisfaction that he was another person that had been abducted. That's my take on it, but it's it's not a bad movie. Yeah, I, I mean I'm not gonna sit there and tell you to run out and see it either, but I guess in the same kind of way that I didn't like Beverly Hills Cop, but I see how lots of people would like it. This is kind of the the opposite, where I I like it, but I can see how a lot of people would like it. So, I mean, I don't know. It, I think it's definitely worth your time, and that's why I wanted to talk about it. It just seems like an interesting... It's an interesting movie, and it's not your usual fare for UFO and alien reduction cool. <laughs> stories. So apparently, <laughs> this is bizarre. So apparently NASA is telling everybody that we should not be calling UFOs UFOs anymore. Do you know what we should call them? Um, no. It's been within the last year or two. UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. <laughs> I've never heard anybody call them that. <laughs> they just call them UFOs. So, yeah, good luck with that, NASA. Well, yeah, he didn't see their spaceship in this movie. Mm-mm. But yeah, anyway. They, yeah, they came to him at, at his cabin. Oh, you want to know how to say UFO in French? (laughs) Sure. OVNI. O-V-N-I. O-V-N-I. And it stands for, that's an acronym, and it stands for Objet Volant Non Identifié. Objet Volant Non Identifié. Make sure you check out our website, tapeheadspod.com. You can go on there. You can see the links to all of our shows. You can... When I talk about links, I'm talking about links that we have put up about our shows when we talk about some YouTube videos. And yeah, right. Our playlists. Yeah, all that kind of stuff you can get on there. You can talk to us. You can let us know how you feel. Did you hate that we did the movie Communion? Hey, I get it, man. <laughs> I thought Communion sucked. <laughs> but uh, we have about uh, 16 or 17 episodes on there. What, what, what episode are we on? I think it's 18, actually. 18 episodes. This is 19. There you go. A lot of hours. You can go and listen to us on your trip to uh, the Grand Canyon. And make sure you honk uh, when you drive by Phoenix, and I'll say hi to you. Thanks for joining us today. We had a good time talking about That's the Way It Is, Baby, not the Friends song. Well, and the Friends song, yeah. But the Rembrandts. both. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, the Rembrandts, Beatlesque album. Yeah, great early power pop, I would say. Absolutely. We forgot to talk about it being power pop. That's what it was. All right, you guys, have a good one, and we will see you later. Thanks for listening. See you next time.